everyone, we'll continue our read through of the New Testament. And today we are in Revelation 19, which brings this fifth cycle to a close, this fifth cycle of visions with the destruction of Babylon, and as we will see today, both also the beast and the false prophet. But in between the destruction of Babylon, the beast and the false prophet, we get this little interlude that gives us a celebration of the saints over the victory of Jesus, which culminates in the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so here we see both celebration and decimation in the same chapter. And they go hand in hand with the perfect mercy and justice of the King of Kings. So let's begin by looking at the celebration in verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, No, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So let's start right, stop right there. So here in the midst of this celebration, we see multiple hallelujahs. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he's victory. All the glory goes to God. He is the reason for the victory. He is the reason for the celebration with the destruction of Babylon. And as we will see in a moment, the beast and the false prophet. All of the corruption he has removed. His judgment is true and just. It is perfect in every way. Even heaven joins in in the celebration of the victory of God. And then we get this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, for a man and a woman to come together in marriage, whether they know it or not, is to plant a signpost which says God's creation is wonderful. This is the reality. God's pinnacle creation was the joining of man and woman in marriage. God's purpose is for that creation and that that beautiful picture of the wedding and and thus the spreading of righteousness throughout the nations was the purpose of of Adam and Eve's call to, to, to reproduce, to fill the earth so that the glory of God would fill this creation as worship would. Nevertheless, God's plan for that was not over. His plan is going ahead of it, and we are told here that we are part of it. Theologians down the ages have always seen the promises made at a wedding, promises of faithfulness through thick and thin as a proper reflection of God's promises to his world, to the human race, and to his own people in particular. A wedding, then, is a glorious symbol. And even when people enter upon it with no thought of God and with an eye only for the dress, the photographs, and the wine, it still remains powerful. 
All of that is the background here in this picture of a great reversal which has now taken place, right? The prostitute has been judged and the bride now steps forward. The glossy, glitzy world of Babylon has been overthrown. God's people emerge with shining, pure linen to wear as God's own gift. The marriage of the Lamb and His bride is to be the focal point of the marriage of heaven and earth themselves. And Babylon, the symbolic equivalent of the ancient Babel, which thought to climb up to heaven by its own works and energy, is now shown up as a futile parody of the real thing, a human attempt to get by sheer greed what God alone pr proposed to give by sheer grace. We find ourselves back in the throne room temple and once again we see the elders and the living creatures worshiping God on the throne. As in chapter 5, they celebrated the Lamb's victory, giving Him the right to open the seal so that the scroll could be read. So now they lead the praises of God along with the huge crowd, those that same crowd back in chapters 5 and chapter 7 of this redeemed multitude, an innumerable multitude which no man can number. The praise begins with hallelujah so often found throughout the the Old Testament scriptures, even though this is the only place it is found within the New Testament. The ancient celebration often found in the Psalms of Yahweh's glory and sovereignty. Hallelujah, praise to Yahweh. We see this in verse 1, 3, 4, and 6, all form a crescendo of praise from giving thanks for the, his proper judgment against the whore to the celebration that her overthrow is absolutely and utterly final. To the summons of all people, small and great, to praise God and finally to celebrate his, this majestic reality that the Lord has become king. Like the claim of almost incredulous joy found in Isaiah 52, this is no abstract theoretical general statement about the overall providence or sovereignty of God. Rather, this is a clear reality that in Christ's return, He has fully and forever consummated His kingship forever, and He hands the kings over to God the Father, just as we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. The idea of such a wedding goes back, of course, to the ancient Jewish tradition of Israel as Yahweh's bride, wooed in the wilderness, married at Sinai, unfaithful for many generations, a picture that we see in the prophet Hosea. And then, nevertheless, God loving her and going after her and ensuring covenant renewal. The whole of the Song of Songs, though at one level simply a spectacular poem of marital love, has been seen by many Jewish and Christian commentators alike as an allegory of the love between God and His people, and for us as Christians, specifically, Christ and His people. Now this glorious theme comes to a spectacular completion and is joined with another ancient theme of celebration, God's great feast the banquet to which he invites those who would come. Jesus employed the theme of a king's marriage supper for his, for his own and hinted at the further related theme that he would talk about regarding the Lord's Supper and a picture of the foreshadow of the feast to come so that every time we go to the table, we share in the promised victory of Christ, not only the new covenant realities, but the shared victory. That when we first came to Christ, we were sealed, given the, what we would say, the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit as it indwells us, a promise of things to come. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the covenant marriage is consummated, and the fullness of God's promises are now given fully in that marriage. 
It is a period of celebration, of feasting and joy, ultimately declaring the victory of the Lord, a victory that now is fully and completely seen in verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his hands are on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in the fine linen, in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we see this picture-perfect display of the justice of the Messiah being poured out on the unbelieving world. And most importantly, upon the beast and the false prophet. You know, there were many Jewish scholars early on who believed that there would perhaps be two messiahs, a royal messiah and a priestly messiah. Others thought that there would be others, ones who would suffer, others who would be a warrior king like David, a temple cleansing king like Hezekiah or Josiah. And so many thought that, that the messiah might appear in many different ways. That's why so many were confused when Christ came and did not offer himself as a great military leader like so many expected, right? Many rejected him because Jesus showed no sign of being a military leader, because he showed no interest in cleaning up the temple from the Gentiles, but instead it seemed as if he cleaned it for the Gentiles. Many believed there's no way he could be the Messiah. But this is to forget just how radical Jesus' own definition of the Jewish expectations seem to have been. Throughout his public career, he took his main theme, the belief which John has been celebrating on and all throughout Revelation, the kingdom of God. He argued that the kingdom of the world had passed to our Lord and his Messiah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, has become king. And these statements are true, of course. Jesus himself spoke of victory, but it was not the victory one expected over the forces of Rome. Indeed, when others wanted to fight Rome, he hinted strongly, if strangely, that this was missing the proper target. The true enemy was the dark power that stood behind Rome and all other pagan empires. Jesus spoke about fighting a battle with the real enemy, the Satan, 
the one who had led all humanity, Israel included, into rebellion against the Creator God. And Jesus seemed to believe that the ultimate way to fight this true battle was by giving up His life alone. It's a remarkable thing that many thought that He would conquer Rome by the sword. And the truth of the matter is that He did. But it was the sword of His gospel. The word of God which come from His mouth, the sword which proceeded from His mouth, that would ultimately bring down the Rome and make it ultimately for so many, many years a Christian empire. Now you may detest what came out of that in the perversions, but what you cannot refuse or deny is that ultimately Rome would find itself in subjection to Christ in many ways that the first century saints could not even possibly have imagined the victory and power of Christ in his advancement of his kingdom. Here we see this absolute and utter destruction of the beast and the false prophet who have led so many astray as the rider on the white horse here, that he who is called faithful and true, the one who has many diadems because he is king of kings and lord of lords, he comes to fulfill the pictures of Isaiah 11, Psalm 2, Isaiah 63, where he brings and brings the iron rod to crush the nations and to tread them in the winepress of the wrath of God. And as John's readers know well by now, the actual weapons which Jesus uses to win the battle are his own blood, his loving sacrifice, his perfect and utter and complete victory through his substitutionary and sacrificial death and when he returns, his absolute, complete, and perfect justice. Here we see the great picture of what this passage is all about. As not only is Christ seen as victorious, but his army is with him. If the military imagery here is an imagery, we see a, a second feast. We've already seen one feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But notice the feast that happens in verse 17 and 18 this great supper upon the wicked, as the birds of the air feast on the flesh of those perverters of people, those who have made love with Babylon and who have followed the beast in their wickedness, who have been deceived by the false prophet. They here are pictured as being utterly destroyed and devoured. Another picture of a great reversal that happens between the followers of the bridegroom who celebrate with Christ in glory, and the followers of Babylon, who themselves become a feast for the birds of the air. Here we see this great picture of the final battle and the great victory of Christ. The fate, is there, the fate of the beast and the false prophet is to be thrown alive into the lake of fire, which in which burns with sulfur, which is an echo of various biblical passages, not least the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Many in our own day are still oppressed by these monstrous forces and the local propaganda machines which promote their cause. Equally, many otherwise well-intentioned people are taken in by the lies and deceit which these systems continue to put out. And Revelation 19 stands as a promise to the first and a warning to the second. That once you understand who Jesus was and is, and the significance of the victory which he has won in his death, there can be no doubt about the final income, 
Monstrous, monstrous regimes may come and go. Lies and deceit will continue to be spread. But we must be on our guard. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords will be victorious. Absolutely, completely, utterly victorious. Yet in the meantime, we as saints looking to and living in the reality of the victory of Christ must live a life with absolutely no compromise, maintaining the white purity of our gowns, looking to the victory that has been purchased to us by our bridegroom, King Jesus. When he returns, will he find a, will he find a bride prepared and ready for his coming? Or will he find a slothful bride too busy having affairs and looking to Babylon to find pleasure elsewhere? God bless.